Hey friends, I am in New York City one day before my big debate with Rabbi Shmuley and we are live and the phone lines are open. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Was that the clip that I recorded on Wednesday saying I was live in New York City one day before the debate Wednesday as opposed to the clip I just recorded today saying one day after? Yeah, it is one day after. I'm in Queens, New York now. Switch from Manhattan to Queens. All my friends in Queens, New York. Great conference tonight and through the weekend together for Israel. The details on my website sdrbrown.org. Click on itinerary. But the phone lines are open. It is Friday, and as we've done regularly for many years, you've got questions, we've got answers. Any question of any kind, any subject you want to raise, any issue you want to address, large or small, whether you are my friend or my foe, phone lines are open. 866-348-7884. The earlier you call in the broadcast, the better chance we have of answering your calls. In a moment, I want to give you a report of last night's debate. I know many of you watched, but the feed, which was not our responsibility, the feed coming out of the building was not a good live stream. So many interruptions along the way, which we apologize for. The good news is it was videotaped in excellent quality. And we'll be posting a video very shortly on our YouTube channel and elsewhere. But it went spectacularly well. And maybe the highlight of all was the couple hours I got to spend with Shmuley and his family afterwards with desires for us to have a whole lot more debates in the days ahead. 866-34-TRUTH. We start in Massachusetts with Miguel. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hey, Dr. Michael Brown, how are you doing? I am blessed, man. Thank you. Oh, that's awesome to hear. Thank our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, sir. I had a quick question about Proverbs 13.22, about the language, the original translation. Go ahead. Uh, so the it says, I noticed that in the more modern translations, like the NIV, it says a good person leaves an inheritance for their children, but I thought that was a little bit fishy, like in my spirit, and I went and I looked it up, and in the uh, KJV, for example, it says a good man leaves an inheritance. Then I went and looked up the original translation, and I don't know exactly where the man comes in, because it, uh, it just says good, and then it says... Um, kind of like inheritance it doesn't i don't really see where man comes in in the original translation and how they actually put in person or man and i wanted to yep. know if you could kind of clarify that for me where i where i get that yes sir easy to explain and great question so the the hebrew is tovian chil benevanim which is literally good or a good or a good something or someone will bequeath, so it will cause to inherit uh, 
children's children, so he will cause his grandchildren to inherit, that he will pass something on to his grandchildren, all right? Now, it's masculine in form. The verb yanchil is masculine, but the word itself is just tov. That just means good. It's normally used as an adjective, so a, a good day or this is good or something like that. But here it just stands by itself. So it is a good something, a good what? Well, the good man will cause his grandchildren to inherit. So in other words, he'll have something to pass on to his children's children because that's the general bless, generational blessing on someone who is good. Now, having said that, Miguel, the reason that modern translations say person instead of man is because man is considered to be not as generic as person. But it's, it's, it is speaking first and foremost to a man because the man would have the inheritance and then he would pass something on to his children and grandchildren. So traditionally, in the ancient biblical world, that's just how it would work. But the spirit of it has nothing to do with male or female. It's the same principle, mm. that someone who is a good, godly person in God's sight will be able to bequeath something to that person's children's children. So it's, it's good person, good man, the meaning is ultimately the same. Okay, sounds good. I just wanted to make sure of that, and I, I wanted to, I like, I thank you for that. Um, a little bit of the clarification on the Hebrew. I think that's that's what I was like most um, curious about, if how how the verbs work. And you mentioned it was a masculine verb. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and if you just have All something right. that's generic, it would be masculine. In other words, in Hebrew today, if I was speaking to a group of people, both men and women. I use a masculine form because that's the one that's generic. And if it's just women, then you say women. So if it's all men, use masculine. If it's all women, use feminine. If it's mixed, use masculine because that's the one that covers things in a generic way. And by the way, uh, one thing with, with, uh, with the book of Proverbs, the Hebrew is very concise as in keeping with proverbial literature. Like, for example, in English, haste makes waste or a stitch in time saves nine. If you're not really familiar with the language and the idiom, you think, hmm, what? What in the world does that mean? So a lot of times in Proverbs, like I had to look at this twice, and it's like, oh, that's what it's saying, because initially you don't expect to see Tov just standing there referring to a person. Hey, thank you for the call. 866-34-TRUTH. We stay in the Northeast in New Hampshire. Greg, welcome to the Line of Fire. Hello there, Dr. Brown. Very nice to speak with you. Um, I have a question about the Catholic Church. Um, I'm an earnest seeker of truth. I haven't uh, committed to Christ yet, but I'm just searching at this point. And I have some friends that are Catholic, and I'm just wondering what your take on the Catholic Church is. Do they teach a false gospel? Um, There's a couple of quotes I just want to read real quick um, from a couple of cardinals. One was Cardinal Newman. He said, either the Church of Rome is the house of God or the house of Satan. There is no middle ground between them. And uh, another cardinal said something very similar. He said that the Catholic Church is either the masterpiece of Satan or the kingdom of the Son of God. That was Cardinal Manning. Uh, The other was Cardinal Newman. 
And so I'm just wondering what your take on that is, um, if you have any comments on those comments, and if you just have any, any guidance for people like me who are searching and trying to figure out where is the true church, is there a true church, and so on and so forth. Thank you. Yeah, so at, at this stage of, of your search, I, I want to answer in a sensitive way, okay? I'm not a Catholic, but I'm not a Catholic basher, meaning I differ with Catholic traditions. I don't believe that they have biblical authority. I don't believe that the Catholic Church is the true church. And there are specific doctrines that the Catholic Church teaches that I believe are contrary to the simple gospel message. That being said, because Jesus is preached as Savior and Lord, and because attention is put on the cross and the resurrection, I'm sure there are many Catholics who are true Christians, just like there are many Protestants who are true Christians. But in the case of Catholicism, I believe they're true Christians despite some Catholic tradition. What I would encourage you to do is to look for true Christians who hold to the fundamentals of the faith as clearly taught in the New Testament as opposed to trying to find the true church because the true church is invisible. The true church is made up of members that God sees and God knows specifically, and often they're in different places than we would expect to find them. So what I would do is I would keep reading the New Testament, and I would say, God, I want to know you. I want to follow you rightly. I don't want to be deceived. There's so many competing claims, and 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 I do believe that Jesus came to save me. Wherever you're at, if you're truly honest with him, he'll meet you, and he'll connect you with other believers as well. But major on the majors, I would not think in the dichotomy terms that you're being presented with in these quotes, and whether it's a Catholic trying to push for that or not, I would get much more simple and say, I know that there are followers of Jesus on the earth, and they're in all shapes, size, and forms. I want to be one of them. So can I just ask you this question? Where would you say you are on your faith journey? I was I was born and raised in a Christian denomination. However, it was it was it is what would many people would consider to be a, a more cultic type of Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of left that after a while and went to college and uh, you know explored a lot of different theologies and philosophies. And so I'm really at a point now where I'm searching for answers and. I guess I'm kind of pulled back towards Christianity because it's what I grew up with. Um, and I, when I do read the Bible, when I read the New Testament, when I read the Old Testament, I, I feel something drawing me. Um, but I, I just, I can't, I can't yet commit because I'm just not sure. I, I'm not sure what to believe at this point. Well, do you believe um, that God is real? I think so, yes. I, I don't see how we're here without there being some sort of intelligence or mind that brought this all into existence, although I do I do wonder why the world is filled with such pain and suffering and yeah. um, well, so th- much those that are, doesn't make sense. 
Right. Those are fair, fair things to wonder about. So, so listen, God has promised. God has promised that if we earnestly seek him, we'll find him. I would get alone with God and I would say, God, I want to know you, whoever you are. I want to know you. I want to follow you. If you created me and, and you love me, then I absolutely want to know you and love you back. But I want to know the truth. He will guide you if you're really sincere. And it's not about your convenience or your temporary happiness, but following the truth. He will guide you. And then, like I said, major on the majors. Keep reading through the New Testament and look at the major themes that are emphasized in the Gospels and repeated in the letters. Father, I pray you bring Greg into the full knowledge of your truth and salvation. In the name of Jesus, amen. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. All right, a little bit later in the broadcast, I'll give you an update on last night's debate with Rabbi Shmuley, but we want to go to the phones, 866-348-7884. All questions on all subjects, as long as they relate to the Line of Fire, they're welcome. Every so often... I'll see a post. It's normally on Facebook, but every so often I'll see a post and someone's asking me for medical advice, which I feel terrible that they have this medical problem and I can't help them with a medical answer, but no medical questions. Faith-related medical questions, that's fine. 866-34-TRUTH. We go to Cary, North Carolina. Eric, welcome to the Line of Fire. Thank you for your program. Um, This occurred to me today thinking about the shootings over the last week trying to figure out uh what what's going on in our uh, culture is this uh secular doctrine or philosophy of to live in the moment i know the era that i grew up in that became a predominant thing before my eyes uh through media and culture that you know uh you couldn't be uh fulfilled or uh, successful if you were always trying to live in the future or the past you had to live in the moment to be actualized blah 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 and i know you're familiar with this is it scriptural uh, is it unscriptural and what's the impact that we see well right what now? what do you mean by living in the moment how would you describe that well, uh, it's very vague actually it's just whatever the culture's been teaching you to hear it on uh guests that would appear on The View or uh, Oprah that I don't watch. Uh, But, you know, uh, being uh, active and actualized in the moment. uh, I I don't have a particular meaning of it myself. Yeah, the bottom line, Eric, is that we're told in the Word that we're in this world, but we're not of the world. We're told not to be conformed to the pattern of this world. And as far as worldly things, not to love them and to live in the light of eternity so that we recognize that we're in the tent of this body in this world, but it's not our eternal home. So yeah, it is unscriptural, 
to shape our thoughts, shape our mindset by the, the norms of the culture. What's accepted one day is rejected the next. I mean, I, I just was sent a picture from an old friend, and it's probably, oh, about 44 years old. And you look at it and you think, yikes. You know, but those were the styles, and that was acceptable. And Well, not just style, but moral values and, and family values and entertainment values. If we're going to live in the moment or for the moment, then we're going to make carnal decisions, and we're going to be influenced by the spirit of the age rather than making quality decisions based on eternity. So thank you, Eric, for the question. I appreciate it. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go over to Georgia. Sean, welcome to the line of fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. How are you today? Doing great. Thank you. Hi. Um, uh, just so you know, I'm uh, Sean Sellers with Didymo Ministries. I actually uh, wrote you today on Twitter, and uh, I wanted to speak with you for a second. Uh, two things. I wanted to let you know, first of all, that how much I love you and that I'm a torchbearer. I also wanted to say that uh, if my in any way uh, offended you, I truly said it out of love and uh, a deeply moved heart because I followed your ministry. Um, the question was uh, a clarity on something, and would uh, rather do a email on it. I completely understand. Uh, but it was concerning Kenneth Copeland. I mm-hmm. was wondering uh, what your position was on him. I know that I've uh, known him for years. My family went to Rainbow Bible College and they him personally, and he uh, turned out to be very... He was saying a lot of things, and I actually wrote up an email, but... But yeah. anyways, uh, I was trying to see where you fully stood on the subject, or if you... Yeah, uh, you cut out a few times, Sean, uh, along the way, but I believe I heard the the question. Uh, let me let me just say this first: we get between tweets, comments on Facebook, our our personal and and public page, and then on YouTube and Instagram, whatever, hundreds of thousands of comments, and the vast majority I don't see. And I just happened while I was in transit today to notice a series of tweets and then someone said something and it was just someone else made a comment. I thought, what's this about? And I just happened to glance and I saw tweets about Kenneth Copeland and my views. I thought, what? That's odd. First, why is it being posted here? And second, that's something I had said. So a- anyway, uh, the only thing I've said about Kenneth Copeland was after that interview that highly criticized interview that he did I said look let's make this a teachable moment I've not followed his ministry I don't listen to his messages I don't read his books I don't get his magazine so I have folks who've known him for many years and think he's a fine man and others that say his ministry is completely heretical I just wanted to make that moment a teachable moment so I was making no comment about him having a private jet or anything I know another ministry that bought a used private jet for you know, a few hundred thousand dollars that shares it with others, and it's a great investment from what they've told me to do certain things totally on a frugal level. I was not making any statement about 
I agree with him having a private jet. No, that was the last thing on my mind. I was simply saying the larger issue is there are a bunch of different ways to do this. Like my friend said, the last thing you ever do is buy a new jet. You have to get this old, you have to do this, you have to share it with other ministries, you have to, et cetera, et cetera. And then it ends up being a good investment. I could never imagine it personally, but anyway, so that was one thing. Yes, and secondly, secondly, I haven't, I haven't followed his ministry and I'm constantly getting challenged by critics to call out this one, to call out that, to somehow prove my orthodoxy by calling out the latest person they have an issue with. And I simply don't play that game. What I did say is right. this, that Justin Peters sent me a detailed email with a list of charges against Kenneth Copeland. If those are true, then indeed he's a false teacher. No question about it. If those charges are true, and then I saw some things you had posted, and, and certainly it seems that uh, a view of the atonement that I consider heretical is something that he still teaches. So if he yes. still teaches that, then I would say, yes, he is teaching a heretical view of atonement. So I, I have no desire to skirt the issue. I just try to be fair because, for example, I went after Benny Hinn for some things he had said. I didn't know he had subsequently repudiated them. Now, I have plenty of other issues with what Benny Hinn teaches or has, has modeled over the years. But unless I actually take the time to look at something, then I'm going to say, if this is true, then this is my position on it. I just haven't examined it. But I actually did follow through on something that I remember you had sent me, some things I, I do get to look at. And, it's, and then yeah. I went to his website, and it seemed that, and this would be the biggest concern, the carnal prosperity message I reject. Everybody knows I reject it, so I, I differ with much of his prosperity teaching. I, I believe in God's provision. I believe that God is an abundant God, and he can bless us to help Amen. others. But much of the emphasis of the modern prosperity message, I absolutely categorically reject, including that which Kenneth Copeland would teach. I reject a good part of that. The provision part, the goodness of God part, I, I affirm. But the biggest concern is the atonement teaching. And if that's current, then I would say he teaches a heretical view of atonement, which gives me grave concern without, yes, without sir, hesitation. Yes, so I hope that clarifies. Uh, it does. And I just want to tell you again how much I absolutely love you. I am a torchbearer and follow you all the time. I pray for you all the time. And well, I want to let you. you know that I'm also uh, taking classes through, um, uh, through your uh, school of ministry and uh, how much I appreciate you. And I, uh, I, I, uh, on the Twitter, I gave you my uh, email address at my ministry to, get, to be able to email you sometimes. Yeah, well, tell you what, Sean, if, if you just, just because I, it's easy for me to forget or miss things, just send that through our website info at askdrbrown.org and just ask to get it to my assistant and he'll pass it on to me. But all, all's good. Fear, fear not. I, I, uh, again, in the midst of a million things going on, I happened to spot something and thought that's odd, but the good is, no, I'm, I'm, I actually, that, I'm actually very good. <laughs> yeah. The, the good you is, clar you clarified that, it. <laughs> yeah. I, and I, I would, I would say that others had questions as well. And again, the so I'm very happy to clarify as best as I can. For those pressing for me to say more, if I have the time and the inclination to look more carefully, things I will. But again, my primary role, I don't, I don't imagine that my primary role is to be God's policeman or doctrinal enforcer. So I have to fo focus on the things of interest to me and not study about 100 different ministries. When I get interested in the subject or burdened, 
then I try to address it. But we all have to do that. So may the Lord's blessing be on you in your, in your ministry work. And thank you for the love and for the monthly support. Really appreciate it. All right, we're going to go right back to the phones, but I, I need to make this important announcement. Torchbearers are the, are the financial foundation of our ministry. They support us with a dollar or more per day, $30 or more per month. And some give more, uh, but $30 or more per month makes you a torchbearer. And we have, I can't tell you how many exclusive benefits for you, videos that you get, audios that you get, benefits that you get, because we want to bless you. And you enable us, everyone listening to me right now on the radio, you're listening to me because of the faithfulness of our torchbearers and also our Patreon supporters. So join us. Go to askdrbrown.org, click on Donate, then Monthly Support, and read about all the benefits that you get as a torchbearer. We'll be right back. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. You've got questions. We've got answers. 866-348-7884. This is really, really interesting. I'm looking over on Amazon on the Jezebel's War with America.com. Uh, uh, excuse me, Jezebel's War with America page. We've got six reviews in already, all glowing. Very excited to see these as the book has just been released. But Amazon is showing usually ships within one to two months. I don't know what in the world they're doing. Uh, the publishers ship more than enough volumes to them. They have them in warehouse. People are getting them sent out. So if you normally order from Amazon, don't worry about it. But to find out your other ordering options, Go to Jezebel'sWarWithAmerica.com. Jezebel'sWarWithAmerica.com. I have never written a book that has had this much pre-buzz interest. And now as it's coming out, one of the first reviews I saw really gratified me. One brother, I'm sure you're listening now, David, who said he's never read a book the first day he got it, except this one. So I think it's going to grab you. But if you order on Amazon, go ahead. You'll get the book quickly. Don't worry about it. But check out your options at Jezebel's War with America.com. All right, let's go to Antonio in Connecticut. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hello. Uh, thank you for having me on. Uh, yes, so my question was more about the what is the unpardonable sin and how do you know that you have not committed it? Yes, so this is a question we're frequently asked. And obviously people with a sensitive conscience want to make sure that they're not guilty of it. Let me answer the second question first. If you had committed the unpardonable sin, you wouldn't be calling the radio show. Uh, You wouldn't be concerned about it because you would have hardened your heart to such a degree that the last thing you'd be thinking about is God or being right with God. You would be utterly, completely, and forever rejected and without any hope of ever looking to God, turning to God, walking with God. So when believers ask this question, the very fact they're asking it means it doesn't apply to them. That would be like me sitting and talking to you and saying, am I dead? 
Well, the fact that I'm sitting talking with you asking the question means I'm not. But what is described as the unpardonable sin in Mark 3, it's mentioned a few times in the Gospels, but it's, it's only explained in Mark 3 that Jesus said this, that blasphemy of the Spirit will never be forgiven. It says he said this because they said he has a demon. In other words, that Jewish religious leaders who saw Jesus Yeshua perform miracles right in front of their eyes by the power of the Holy Spirit willingly and knowingly attributed that to demons. It was a level of hardness. It was a level of sin. It was a level of blasphemy that crossed the line. In other words, it's not an arbitrary thing because the whole message of the Bible, Antonio, is God's forgiveness and grace. And then through the cross, it shouts out to the world. And, and we all fall short one way or another every day of our lives and come to him for mercy. When I was debating Rabbi Shmuley last night, and he was saying, Mike, tell me that as a religious Jew, as an observant Jew, loving God, loving my family, loving my neighbor, you know, that I will have eternal life. And I said, Shmuley, I'd, I'd love for that to be the case, but our righteousness is like filthy rags. We all fall short. So every day of our lives, we stand by grace. So someone has to go to a certain point of hardness and of utter rejection right. of God to blaspheme the Spirit. And that doesn't happen accidentally. Well, I heard someone speak in tongues and I mocked it. No, no, no. It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't happen through someone knowing the right thing and not doing it one day. Look, Peter betrays Jesus three times and Jesus forgives him and restores him. So take it to heart, okay? Right. All right. Hey, thank you, sir, for the call. Grace to you and whoever else that applies to. 866-34-TRUTH. We go over to Kentucky. Michael, welcome to the line of fire. Are you there? Yes, sir. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Yes, sir. Can you hear me? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. All right. Um, I had a question about um, the church's role in politics. Um, um, I've grown up uh, as a Pentecostal and um, and in church, and I was often told that uh, the politics is more for you know the secular people, and uh, it's not something that we are to you know really be involved with. We just sit back and pray and let God handle that, and and um, a lot of people that have um, kind of they, they, they will either cite uh, the scripture that says um, you know we are not of this world and things like that or they'll cite uh, Romans chapter 13 where you know it's talking about God's role in government and um, how he deals with those things and it seems more to me how they push it is more of a deterministic view of God's um, of God, God's providence and how he acts in the world. And so I just got to say, well, if, if that's the case, then what's the point of voting or praying or anything like that for government if God is the one who's responsible for all this? So I'm trying to stand, understand our role or, you know, in that. Yes. Let me say, Michael, that politics is like anything else in this world. We get involved, we're appropriate, but we make sure that we don't soil our hands in the process. We live in this world, and politics affects us in a thousand different ways, from the local school board 
voting about a curriculum that's going to affect your children to a decision about guns to a decision about abortion to, you know, in many, many ways, just things that affect our lives one way or another. So to me, Christians, if they have the opportunity to get involved uh, in in the, the Roman Empire, it was a different setting. But if we have the opportunity to get involved with voting, if we can advocate for certain things, it's part of what we do. But we do it in a way that makes clear we are first and foremost Christians. We are first and foremost followers of Jesus, as opposed to Democrats or Republicans or independents. Our allegiance is first and foremost to, to the King, to the Lord Jesus, and then secondarily, with honor and respect, to our government, and that we don't sell our soul to politics. It, look, I, I wish, Michael, on a certain level, that we could, as the church, avoid the culture wars entirely and avoid political involvement entirely and just tell people about Jesus and make disciples, but abortion is a life and death issue. Do we sit by and say nothing when that's taking place? Uh, drag queens reading right. to toddlers in libraries. Do we just sit back and say nothing when it's taking place? What if there is an unjust tax system that's oppressing the poor or something like that? Do we sit back and say nothing? So that's the challenge. And then who are we going to vote for? And, and, and everybody has a political opinion now. So it's, it's, it's a fine line to walk where we don't sell our soul to a party, where we don't put our heart in politics, but that we get involved in a pragmatic way. When I look at the state of America and what I can do to help change America for the better, let's just say I, I had a list of 10 things. My political involvement might be seven or eight on that list. It's not going to be high on the list, but there will be some involvement because we intersect with it, and some will be called to active political leadership to, to, to run for office. Others will be called mainly to pray. Others will be called mainly to, to vote and then work in their local communities. So we intersect with every area of society. The question is, how do we do it? Let's make sure we do it in a way that doesn't soil our testimonies. Okay, okay. With, with, and, and I'm perfectly with you there, sir. And, and uh, I guess it just frustrates me a lot of times to see so many of our brothers and sisters in the Lord be so politically isolated and culturally isolated that they have no clue on what's going on and praying. And that's part of, thing. that's part of why we're in such a mess. That's, that's part of the problem. Yeah. You're yeah. exactly, in, in other words, everything goes wrong around us and, and we, we abdicate yeah. our role in society and then we get mad that everything's yeah. gone down around us. Like, well, we didn't yeah. do anything. <laughs> yeah. Well, well then when, um, and lastly, um, I know you got to move on. But and lastly, when it comes to voting, then, you know, um, you know, I, I, I've uh, some pastors that I've uh, associated with in the past have said, oh, well, you know, God specifically um, puts up, you know, politi- you know, uh, politicians and presidents and things like that. So our voting plays no part into who's going to be put up, because whoever God wants in that office is going to be in that office. And I'm like, that sounds like a false dilemma as if god doesn't use humans as exactly. a means to put certainty. of course yeah okay, okay. A- absolutely to- totally with you on that yes sir all right man god bless okay. thanks for the call okay thank you uh, yep and let, let me just say this folks i i am actively involved in the culture wars 
and, and God's called me to be actively involved, and it's part of one of the three R's of our ministry, revival in the church, revolution in society, redemption in Israel. So we want to see a gospel-based moral and cultural revolution, and it continues to rise. The pushback continues. And I have spoken about the presidential elections and raised issues various ways and things like that. But to me, I have to focus, 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 focus on seeking God, exalting the, the, the Lord Jesus, making him known, sharing the gospel, speaking the truth, doing apologetics, etc., and where appropriate, weigh in on all these other issues. Uh, all right, let's see here. Uh, Michael in, I guess Michael's not there. Okay, here is this question. I, I saw on, on Drudge Report, and uh, it's, it's getting a lot of circulation, that there were foxes seen at the wall, the Kotel, the Western Wall, and that it goes back to a Talmudic tradition and to biblical prophecy, and should we make something out of it? In, in my view, I don't pay much attention to these things. By the way, we've got a phone line or two open, so it doesn't happen often but on a Friday, but it happened right now, 866-34-TRUTH. But I, to me, this is one of those curiosities, and there's nothing significant about it. That being said, I could be wrong. This could be some kind of sign, but I'm very slow to see these things as special signs and, and so on and so forth. So if you just, if you say, what in the world is this about? Just search for foxes at Western Wall. Foxes at Western Wall. So had a few hundred folks show up and, and then many, many watching online. My debate with Rabbi Shmuley is the New Testament anti-Semitic. It was a lively debate an electrifying debate, what I thought went very, very well. And we united at the end to say, as Orthodox Jew, Messianic Jew, we stand side by side against anti-Semitism. I think the only debate we ever did that closed with a rousing standing ovation. Amazing. We'll be right back. It's the Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Hey, last night after the debate, got to meet a lot of folks. So many kind words. Thank you so much for your gracious words. And, and what a blessing to know that we've been a blessing and help to so many of you. Thank you. All right, 866-34-TRUTH in North Carolina. Deshaun, you are on the line of fire. Hey, what's going on, Dr. B? Thanks for having me on here. Hey, all good. I, uh, I had a question in regard to uh, the meaning of, just to see what Paul meant in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 22, particularly when he was talking about... Um, becoming like those under the law to win them and becoming like those outside the law to win them. And also um, how this would apply to like a Jew who comes to Christ. Are they, is there any like obligation one way or another to have their life look like, you know, a Jewish believer or are they free to look like a Gentile believer? Yeah. A, a massive and very important question and verses that, Rabbi Shmuley brought up last night as well. So first thing, let me, let me just read these for, for some that may not be familiar yeah. with them. Uh, and Paul is explaining his 
ministry policy, his missions policy to the Corinthians. And he says, verse 19, 1 Corinthians 9, For though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all, that I might win war of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but rather under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. So obviously he's not saying uh, to the drug addicts I became a drug addict and to the serial killers <laughs> yeah. I became a serial killer. Right? So he's talking about within different cultures how to live in order to reach people. You say, but, but hang on, this is your big question. A Jew relating to the law, that's not a cultural issue. So notice he says that he is not outside the law of God, but he's under the law of Messiah, meaning that he's living as a new covenant Jew. He is living as a Jew. He made clear in in Acts 21, he continued to live as a Jew, and he taught other Jewish believers to continue to live as Jews. He addresses this in 1 Corinthians 7, where he says, were you called circumcised, meaning called to salvation, then don't become uncircumcised. Were you called uncircumcised, don't become circumcised. He said, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. So when it comes to salvation, being circumcised or uncircumcised counts for nothing. But in terms of calling, it may be part of your calling if you're called circumcised, if you're called uncircumcised. So In Paul's view, he was not under the law the way he had lived before he came to the Messiah. He was not under the condemnation of the law. He was not under the tutelage of the law to bring into the Messiah. And he was not under the law as a system or standard of righteousness. The law was not written on his heart. It didn't mean he stopped living as a Jew. It meant that he did in the newness and life of the Spirit. So when ministering to other Jews... He would now take on traditions and a lifestyle that he didn't have to in order to win them. And with the Gentiles, he would not take those things on, but he was still under the Messiah's law. So it's debatable whether Paul lived like a Gentile among the Gentiles. Some point to Galatians 4 when he says, I became like you, that would indicate that. Others would say that's inconsistent with the picture of Paul in the book of Acts. Rabbi Shmuley last night said that Paul is a mystery to him. Paul's a mystery to many scholars, uh, both his writings and his lifestyle. They try to figure out. Second Peter 3 says a lot of what he writes is hard to understand, and, and sinners and unstable people twist it. But as I understand it, in short, Deshaun, a Jewish believer getting saved is still called to be a Jewish believer, just like a man is called to be a man and a woman is called to be a woman. But that will express itself in different ways depending on the nature of that calling. For some, it may mean living in Israel. For some, it may mean living in a way that very much follows the Torah lifestyle, but in the newness of the Spirit, so the seventh-day Sabbath observance and, and the feasts and holy days. For others, it's a sense of identity To me, a lot of it determines how you were living when you were saved as a Jew. And now when you come to faith, if you're a very religious Jew, you'll probably still keep certain traditions and customs as part of your life. But understanding these are secondary issues. The larger thing is, 
I'm called to serve God, know God, find my righteousness in the Messiah, find my forgiveness and salvation through the cross, but still have an identity as a Jew or as a Gentile in a secondary way. And again, there, there's much, much more to be said, but that is the shortest answer I could give that I think is still helpful, okay? Okay. Yeah, and, and again, Deshaun, feel free to, to sift that through and a few weeks or a few months call with a follow-up to that, all right? But again, I'm, I mean, especially after last night's debate, there's so much to say. But best to leave it there. All right, 866-34-TRUTH. We go to Arkansas. Joe, welcome to the line of fire. Hey, thanks, Buck Brown. And I uh, just want to say I really appreciate you and Rabbi Shmulian and enjoyed that debate a lot. Uh, very helpful. Awesome. Yeah, and, and we, we are uh, hoping I... the, the live feed cut out a lot, so we are hoping to put up the uh, a good version of it videotaped in the next 24 to 48 hours on the uh, Ask Director Brown YouTube channel and on our website. Okay, back to you. Awesome. Looking forward to rewatching it. Uh, I I wanted to sort of expand on the, your previous caller, Michael's question with the foxes thing. Um, I, I saw an article about it, and it was, I think, Jerusalem Post. And there was one part uh, where they said the understanding about this sign is, according to the Talmud, in, and forgive me if I mispronounce this, tractate, Makot 24b. Makot, yes. So in the Talmud, Makot 24b. Got it? Yep. Okay. Is that if the prophecies of destruction have been fulfilled, so will the ones be by the prophet Zechariah about the temple being rebuilt. So I went and and read through that, um, and it's sort of convoluted to me how they connect a prophecy of Uriah with one with Isaiah. Uh, But then in that... Uh, text itself, it seems the prophecy of Zechariah they're talking about is Zechariah 8.4, where it says, There shall yet be elderly men and elderly women sitting in the streets of Jerusalem. And so uh, my, I, I just don't uh, understand. I mean, it seems to me that this is something that has already been fulfilled, is it not? Yeah. So first... In terms of something seeming convoluted to you, welcome to the world of the Talmud. Uh, it, is, it is not easily understood unless you can read the Hebrew Aramaic, and even then, you have to have real strong background in it. And then, if you read in English, you need to read an expanded English translation because it's, it's conveyed in very short language. So, Talmudic scholars, they'll explain the meaning, but it, there's a lot to learn to understand, so yeah, it can seem convoluted, but there's always a, there's a deeper sense. In other words, there, there's a reason that they're saying what they're saying. So, yes, in short, what it's saying is that hey, Zechariah, Uriah, different ones prophesied destruction, and there'd be foxes at the Western Wall, and if that happened, then that's going to assure us that there's also going to be restoration. If the destruction passages happen, the restoration passages will happen. If God scattered, He'll regather. If He destroyed. He'll rebuild. So Zechariah 8 was fulfilled with the return from Babylon, okay, as just as Ezekiel 36 and other passages, but not completely fulfilled, only partially fulfilled. That all of the prophecies talking about what would happen when the Jewish people returned from exile, when that took place, 
various things were supposed to happen that would be utterly and absolutely glorious, utterly and absolutely extraordinary, and the whole nation turning to God and righteousness established, and only part of it happened. So that's, that's the understanding that these things have a future fulfillment as well. They had a partial fulfillment 2,500 years ago. They are in ongoing state of fulfillment with Jerusalem being rebuilt and destroyed today. And there will be a final ultimate fulfillment. And that's what we're looking forward to. Uh, Thank you, Joe, for the call. Hey, Adam, I don't have time to bring you on. But as you're asking, how can you know that you've been saved? Number one, take God at his word. If you've done what the word of God calls on you to do by putting your trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord, by believing that he died for your sins and rose from the dead, if you've put your trust in him, trust his word. That's number one. Number two, ask God to give you a real witness in your spirit that you know that you know. So number one, trust his word. Number two, ask for that witness in the spirit. And number three, as you read the word and pray and fellowship with other believers, watch to see the changes in your life. That'll be a further evidence of being born again. And Eugene, you're a great question as to whether Jesus loves everyone the same. Yes and no. Yes, in terms of he died for everyone the same way. He laid down his life for everyone the same way. Indiscriminate outpouring of God's love to make salvation possible to all human beings and to infallibly save those who put their trust in him. But does he love his people who love him and have intimate relationship with him differently than he loves a rebellious sinner? Of course, because we have a close relationship and enjoy that fellowship whereby he calls us his friends. Hey, visit AskDrBrown.org until we talk again.